Hello, everyone, and welcome to On the Safe Side, a monthly podcast hosted by the editors of Safety and Health Magazine, the official magazine of the National Safety Council. This is Alan Ferguson, Associate Editor with Safety and Health. With me, as always, are my colleagues and fellow Associate Editors, Barry Bettino and Kevin Drewley. This is our March 2022 episode, number 25, if you're counting along with us, and most notably, our two-year anniversary. Wherever or however you're listening to us today, we sincerely thank you for spending some time with us, as always. We know that many of you have had a unique journey into the safety profession, and we want to hear about it for our My Story feature in our magazine. We invite you and or your colleagues to submit your personal stories about how you got into the safety field by emailing us at safehealth@nsc.org. You can also view past My Story entries and catch up on other news from around the safety world at our online home, safetyandhealthmagazine.com. In this month's episode, Barry will take us on a deep dive into his feature story on storm recovery safety. We'll also be joined by Nicole Randall of the International Safety Equipment Association for our Five Questions With interview segment. Nicole will discuss PPE, including the impact on female workers. And stay tuned for our pop quiz when we look back at our favorite segments, guests, and other highlights from our first two years. Is everybody ready? Let's go. Each month here at On the Safe Side, we expound upon a feature story from the pages of Safety and Health magazine, and we call this our deep dive segment. In our March issue, Barry looks closer at issues related to storm recovery worker safety. As a variety of severe weather events pose different threats throughout the country, these workers face hazards such as electrical, chemical, biological, and environmental as they assist with the recovery process. Barry, we look forward to getting the lowdown on this story. So when you're ready, could you please step out on the diving board and get ready to leap into the podcast pool? Well, thank you so much, Kevin. Appreciate the intro. And for those of us who still remember blockbuster video stores, I'll try to do my best triple Lindy with this deep dive, a la Rodney Dangerfield in the movie Back to School, a true cult classic. So when we're talking about storm recovery workers and their safety, uh, th- these workers are facing an enormous amount of hazards. Uh, One of my sources, Ian Madison, who is the senior manager of safety at Entergy, a New Orleans-based utility company, said it best when he told me, uh, one of the main challenges of storm recovery is you don't know what you're getting into until you get started. And Ian and the storm team at Entergy, along with recovery workers in a number of different industries, have seen plenty, especially in the past year. According to the National Centers for Environmental Information, which is part of the uh, Federal National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which you may know as NOAA, uh, reported that in 2021, the United States experienced 20 different weather or climate-related events that caused at least a billion dollars in damage. And that was the third highest number of billion-dollar storms in a single year, according to NCEI. And this encompasses a, a wide range of disasters, from wildfires and drought in the western U.S. to tornadoes in the Midwest to hurricanes and tropical storms in the Southeast. I I spoke with Christopher Lauber, who's the acting director of the Office of Emergency Management and Preparedness in OSHA's Directorate of Technical Support and Emergency Management. He outlined the the many variables that, that workers face, which can be as wide as the parts of the country that they impact. And Lauber said there were biological hazards such as sewage, standing water and body fluids, uh, environmental hazards that can include animals, insects, and poisonous snakes, 
there are chemical hazards, there are electrical hazards such as down power lines. Uh, there are concerns about portable generators, which can create exposure to carbon monoxide. And there are infrastructure issues uh, that can involve situations such as damage to gas lines. Uh, traffic hazards are also a big one. You have stoplights not working uh, after storms and stop signs that may have been knocked down or even blown away. And this creates a potential issue with vehicles striking each other or striking workers. Uh, there's a potential for heat and cold stress. Uh, there's working in low light conditions, falls from heights, mold or asbestos in homes, and debris removal uh, when workers are using chainsaws and other tools. And Corey Worden, who is a safety advisor for the City of Houston Health Department, said with, that with all those occupational concerns, you also have a, a greater need for heightened situational awareness. And he said, every time there's a different disaster, there's lots of things that come up that people don't see coming. And the prime example he gave was when Hurricane Harvey hit South Texas in August of 2017. He said the storm made landfall, it retreated, and then it came back. As you mentioned, with so many hazards present during storm recovery, uh, how do workers and safety professionals manage this process? Well, Alan, all, all three of the sources that I talked to for this story it talked at length about the value of training. Uh, and, and in terms of resources, I want to make sure to mention that OSHA has more than uh, 100 fact sheets and quick cards and other training items online. Um, FEMA's ready.gov website also can be really helpful uh, on that site, you can find preparedness training information, crisis communication plans, and lots of other resources as well. And Ian Madison from Entergy uh, said that training doesn't have to come with a lot of fanfare to be effective. Uh, at Entergy, for example, they do tabletop simulations so the storm team can prepare. And in addition, they send training materials, including digital resources, to contractors and vendors and others who will be assisting in any recovery efforts. And these resources touch a lot of bases and include things such as COVID-19 policies, uh, heat exhaustion, hydration tables, lightning policies, and so on and so on. I'm sure we've all seen television news footage of work crews entering an area after a hurricane or tornado, for example. And having spent time living in central Illinois, I can recall a, a line of utility trucks heading south on Interstate 55 one summer to respond to a disaster. Now, some of these workers may be responding from a thousand or more miles away. So preparing them for what they're going to see, alligators, wild boars, snakes, etc., and also feel uh, oppressive heat and humidity uh, is important as well. And, and what Madison said is he's identified three phases of a recovery process. And all of those phases have unique challenges and, and strategies. Now, first comes the mobilization phase. And that's when Ian and his colleagues are, are getting their incident command system up and running. And as workers and equipment resources are starting to arrive in an area. Now, this can involve trying to find housing for the hundreds and sometimes thousands of workers who are arriving. Uh, they're dealing with unknown travel conditions and communications issues, such as you know cell towers being down. Uh, workers arriving often want to get to work as quickly as possible, and, and these folks want to help people in difficult situations. Uh, however, this can often mean making poor decisions that come with uh, rushing or ignoring policies and procedures. Uh, secondly, you have the restoration phase when services are starting to come back online in an affected area. During that phase, electrical contact injuries are common. 
Uh, again, traffic concerns for workers and the public. And at times, recovery workers can even be in danger of physical violence from frustrated customers. Uh, communication and also miscommunication can, can be common during this period. The third phase is when recovery work moves from, let's say, days into weeks as recovery is ongoing. And this means that workers are working long shifts. They're working some very long weeks, and that can lead to fatigue, uh, cutting corners, a lack of focus, uh, time pressure, and frustration from customers, and, and sometimes even a pressure from the media, especially if critical infrastructure is impacted. Barry, you mentioned communication and miscommunication. What makes communication so important during these severe weather events? Well, Kevin, communication is sort of like training. It can be done in a number of ways. Uh, you have your toolbox talks, safety huddles, and briefings before an event, of course. But the key point that all of the sources in this story made was to keep communicating during a recovery event because things can and often will change, sometimes dramatically. Uh, Christopher Lauber from OSHA used the word imperative when he talked about having a communication plan. And when Hurricane Harvey hit Houston and South Texas, uh, Corey Worden said he was working for a healthcare system. And every day from the time the storm was approaching, he put together a daily bulletin about hazards, uh, not just in the healthcare system, but also for workers who may have been driving to work, uh, where there are flooded roads to contend with. Also, just to make them aware of dangers such as uh, electrical hazards. Uh, this also involved workers who couldn't get out of their homes. Um, he shared how to protect yourself while, while walking through floodwaters, uh, for example. And Corey said some workers encountered difficulties walking around their yards and some unknowingly walked into a pool or in one case, even into an open manhole. And by communicating daily uh, with his team members, uh, Corey was able to share, share strategies for going back into your home, such as wearing nitro gloves underneath your work gloves to protect the skin from floodwaters and using N95 respirators in cases of uh, mold or other irritants around the home. And my story also covers some ground on how smaller organizations and safety teams uh, can manage getting their facilities back up and running, and also the importance of building relationship with local, state, or regional disaster preparedness agencies in your area. Um, and these relationships can pay many dividends in the time of, of a severe weather event. The last thing I wanted to mention was something that didn't make this story. And, and clearly, storm recovery work is very demanding, and it has plenty of risks, as, we, as we've mentioned. Um, but Ian Madison mentioned that there are a, a fair share of rewards. Uh, and he said for the, every disgruntled customer that utility workers can encounter, for example, there are are several who take the time to, to check in on workers, to thank them, to bring them food or Gatorade or water. Um, he also mentioned that the two of his most rewarding moments came after Hurricane Ida, uh, which made landfall in August of 2021 in Louisiana. Um, first, there was a generator failure at a hospital that required a quick response team to be put together. Uh, that team was able to address the issue quite rapidly, uh, so much so that no patients had to be relocated from that facility. Uh, then a couple days after Ida, uh, two o'clock in the morning, um, Ian said that he was in the command center when lights came back on in the city of New Orleans. And he called that a, a moment that you can't really replicate in your career. And he added that being able to see that progress is a tremendous feeling, especially after destruction. Thank you, Barry, for this interesting deep dive. And that triple Lindy definitely was worthy of Thornton Mellon and even the uptight Dr. Barbet. 
But more importantly, I'm sure our listeners feel much more enlightened about storm recovery worker safety after listening to this. Uh, and really, it's an especially timely discussion as spring nears and the sudden weather changes become more common across the country. If you want to read more about this topic or discover other news from around the safety world, please check out the March issue of Safety and Health Magazine or visit www.safetyandhealthmagazine.com. Every safety professional has a unique story, so what's yours? Safety and Health Magazine wants to hear about your unique path into the occupational health and safety field for our My Story column. Email your submission to safehealth at nsc.org to share the road you traveled in your career journey of keeping workers safe and healthy. For our listeners who work in occupational safety and health roles, PPE is well known as a part of the hierarchy of controls that can help protect workers from hazards such as noise, falls, silica, asbestos, and much more. During the COVID-19 pandemic, our friends and family members and neighbors have all become familiar with the term personal protective equipment and the protections it has offered to physicians, nurses, first responders, and millions of other frontline and essential workers across the country. With us today to talk about the, the many facets of PPE is Nicole Randall, who is the Director of Marketing and External Affairs at the International Safety Equipment Association. And Nicole, thank you so much for joining us today on The Safe Side. Thanks so much. Uh, we appreciate being here. So Nicole, throughout the pandemic, PPE is a term that everyone in the general public has become familiar with. How has that helped or hindered those in the safety and health field, do you feel? Well, only safety insiders knew the acronym PPE before, right? But now it's a household name. I don't think that this general awareness has either hurt or harmed those in the safety field. More awareness about what helps protect our workers is always good, but it doesn't change all of the good work done daily to ensure that workers have the PPE they need based on the hazards that they might face. Now, the pandemic in general certainly has emphasized the importance of safety and keeping workers safe on the job. It's really put a spotlight on better preparedness as we anticipate the inevitable future emergency. At ISCA, we've certainly taken the opportunity to educate the general public about PPE. The public has been hearing and reading about PPE products and the standards to which they conform. The government's been informing them all about this. And we're hopeful this spotlight has encouraged users to research safety equipment and learn what to look for to ensure an authentic, safe product, to know what's real and to know what's not. We've also used this platform to talk about the variety of PPE available. While N95s and respiratory protection are vital protective products and so necessary as we continue to fight this virus, there are so many more that help to minimize the risk workers face every day. So PPE in the spotlight has really provided a great opportunity for education. In the March issue of Safety and Health, we have a feature story about women in safety, and PPE is something that continues to be an issue for female workers more so than their male counterparts. Uh, how has PPE changed for women, and what steps forward has the industry seen in products or trends? Yeah, sizing of PPE products for women continues to be an issue. If a product doesn't fit properly, it, it, can perf it cannot perform as expected, or the worker simply won't wear it. But there is certainly more awareness about this issue now than ever before. More and more people are talking about it and looking at the science behind the fit, the human factor data to design for different human sizes. 
In fact, ISCA is currently working with ASSP to publish a technical report that should serve as a guide to manufacturers and end users for all the considerations when you're designing and choosing PPE for women. So you just mentioned some of these, but what are the biggest challenges that still exist for women when it comes to PPE? Sure. Really, it's access. We hear workers complain that their employers are not purchasing and providing the different sizes or fits that they need. You know, this needs to be demand driven. Here at ISCA, we're striving to bring the PPE manufacturer and user together. Discussion about what's available and possible will make employers more aware of what they can offer to their workers. And Nicole, how can safety professionals ensure that their workers have the right PPE? Well, really, this starts with a thorough job hazard analysis, a thoughtful, thorough review of the work that needs to take place, all the hazards and potential risks, and then we determine how best to address these hazards, minimize the risks, and which PPE products can help. And training is vital. A safety professional should understand the hazards of the workplace and know which products can help. Purchasing PPE products from a trained, qualified professional is very important. For example, graduates of ISCA's QSSP program are qualified safety sales professionals. What you need is a trusted safety partner who understands the products that they're selling to you and which are best for the different work environments in which you're operating. You want to make sure you're working with someone who can integrate health and safety into your equipment needs. What resources, Nicole, do you recommend for workers and employers to enhance their PPE knowledge? OSHA is a key partner for all of us, not only by setting general workplace standards, but the growing number of campaigns that they offer that focus on the various hazards, such as fall prevention or heat stress. These campaigns can offer great insight into the PPE that can help protect workers. And employees can stay educated by working directly with PPE manufacturers, learn how their products meet the current standards, learn about the new innovations that they might offer in their products. And a good place to start is by attending a big expo show and and, and attend the seminars. Or you can visit our website, safetyequipment.org, and learn which manufacturers produce the PPE you need and reach out to them. Really, it's all about seeing what's out there and asking questions. Well, Nicole, we truly appreciate you sharing your insights on this topic with us today. It was really great to have you here on The Safe Side. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. As we mentioned, it's the second anniversary of this podcast, and the traditional gift for that anniversary is something made of cotton. While I don't have any high-thread count sheets or t-shirts to give away, I do have some memories to share about the first two years of this venture, and I'll go first. I think the great thing about this is it's another chance to share our stories that we've worked on and kind of, you know, all the hard work that we've put into and all all the great people that we've talked to. In terms of guests, I I would like to point out um, that uh, Paul McNeil was very, our former ocean inspector, was very patient when we had a lot of technical difficulties on our, our third episode in trying to to get his interview started. So I was very appreciative of that. And of course, Really enjoyed our uh, two live shows at Congress and Expo. Uh, what about you, Barry? Well, Alan, it's funny you bring up Congress and Expo. I, I remember two of our first guests when we first started the podcast are uh, safety and health columnist and fellow podcaster Richard Hawk uh, and Tim Page Bodar from Safe Start. They were two of our first guests on the podcast, and they were also with us live at Congress and Expo back in the fall. And uh, I'm excited to see where the podcast goes from here. I'm excited to do more live shows. And, and when we get to San Diego in September, I'm really excited to, to have some more folks come join us. 
And uh, Kevin, how about you? I've really enjoyed the, you know, in addition to everything you all have discussed, just the conceptualization and the the collaboration. Um, it's hard to believe that the two years basically has coincided with the onset of the pandemic in the U.S. And in addition to those Congress episodes, we recorded the very first one live in person in the studio at World Headquarters in Itasca. But since then, we've been doing these largely from from home. I know Barry is traditionally in, in our office, but we've really done a lot of troubleshooting and it's just, you know, there's been everything from grassroots stuff. I remember once the uh, apartment association was doing landscaping and I had to retreat from my de facto home office into the, the laundry room, which was the bunker and safe from all that kind of sound. So there's been things like that, but just, it's, it's really been fun to see this take off from the ground floor. And, you know, we're going to thank Steve Maslin here shortly, but even hearing that riff for the first time, we were just, I remember sitting with you guys and talking about what kind of music that we wanted. So it really has been uh, just a joy with all that. Um, spent a little time just looking at some of the the episode abstracts and you can do the same at safetyandhealthmagazine.com. Um, but I remember, you know, episode seven being a pretty strong one and we hit on technical and kind of quote unquote soft skill uh, matters and safety. But I know that one we had um, Marissa Levine from the University of South Florida talking about how COVID-19 was impacting the mental health of workers and employers, um, talked about a feature about storytelling and safety, which we since have uh, spoken with a guest or a, a source from that story as a guest for a separate episode. So again, it's just been fun to see things take off and just kind of, you know, create new opportunities and, and other avenues. Well, those are some really great answers. And now we want to hear from you in the audience. Uh, go ahead and share your thoughts on your favorite highlight of this podcast first two years by emailing us at safehealth.nsc.org or checking in with the hashtag SafeSidePopQuiz on social media. Thank you so much for joining us for this month's episode. We know that your time is valuable and we're grateful that you've spent some of it with us. As you might have heard a few times, this does mark our two-year anniversary of this podcast and just want to say we're especially thankful for those of you who have been part of the journey for every deep dive discussion, interview question, and pop quiz riff. If you'd like to share some feedback, email us at safehealth at nsc.org. We also appreciate you sharing a rating and review of this podcast. To find stories such as Barry's feature on storm recovery worker safety, as well as the latest news from around the occupational safety world, visit us online at safetyandhealthmagazine.com. Also, make sure you follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Original music for this podcast was composed by the aforementioned Steve Maslin. Thank you so much, Steve. We'll be back next month with another episode to have more safety-related discussions, talk to trusted voices from around the profession, and hopefully make you smile a bit. In the meantime, we appreciate you listening via whatever platform and ask you to feel free to spread the word about this podcast. Most of all, please stay on the safe side. <music>